1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome back to New Books in Economics, part of the New Books Network. This is Andrea Bernardi from Oxford Brooks University. Today we are with Dr. Margaret Effernan. she is the author of Uncharted, How to Map and Navigate the Future Together. It was published by Simon & Schuster in 2020. Margaret, welcome. Thank you for your time. Thank you. It's great to be talking to you, Andrea. Uh, can you tell us something about your background? Uh, I can just say that in the meantime that you have been you worked at the BBC for many years, then you moved to the United States where you became a businesswoman, and that uh, besides publishing books, this is your seventh or your sixth, uh, you are also a professor of practice at the University of Bath.
1: Yes. So my my background is, as you say, you know, I started work at the BBC and then um, in the 90s, I moved to the UK, US where I ran tech companies um, in Boston for many years. And then I moved back to the UK because I wanted my children to grow up here. And, um, and uh, having run five businesses, I decided I wanted to run a business with no employees, which, you know, very much profoundly limits one's options. And, um, and so I started writing. And uh, as you know, I've written six books. Probably the one um, for which I'm best known is a book called Willful Blindness, which looked at why it is when terrible things happen in the world or in organizations the narrative is always, wow, we could never see this coming. Then it turns out some people saw it coming. Then it turns out lots of people saw it coming. And so the question really is for that book was if so many people see things um, that are going badly, um, why is it that we all pretend that it's all going fine? And and this book, I think this new book is definitely related to that, but it's a, it's a very different kind of question. Because there are many things about the future we simply can't see. So it's a different question, which is, instead of ignoring the obvious, why do we think we can see certainty when it doesn't exist?
2: Uh, but if I can uh, mention your 2012 TED Talk, uh, a very successful one, and the title was "There to Disagree. You start with a beautiful story about Alice Stewart. Uh, she she was Oxford in the 50s. And her story is about how even when we have certainty based on clear medical data, it's not easy to change our habits, our professional rules. Um, so, uh, I mean, yes, this book is about uncertainty, but probably there is a link also with that TED Talk about somehow certainty and unknown. Yeah.
1: Yeah, so you make a very excellent point, which is, you know, we crave certainty, but all, often certainty isn't our friend either. So the great story about, about Alice Stewart is that, you know, she did this gigantic study of childhood cancers. Um, she was drawn to it because it was very anomalous. Most uh, diseases correlated with poverty. But in this case, in England in the 1950s, Uh, Childhood cancers were correlated with prosperity. So she wanted to understand what was going on. And essentially what her research showed was that the families who had children who had died of cancer, uh, uh, significantly, uh, the mothers had been x-rayed when pregnant. And so Alice published her results. Everybody was really stunned by this. Quite quickly after the Harvard School of Public Health did a very similar study, pretty much identical results with a much larger cohort. And the question was, um, why, given this preponderance of data, did it take the medical establishment 25 years before they stopped X-raying pregnant women? This was a beautiful example of willful blindness because the evidence was there. It was in front of people who absolutely had the capacity to understand it and yet they chose to ignore it. And my own explanation for this, because obviously it's quite complex, is that to a very large degree, it challenged the mental models people had of disease. And and having the choice between the theory of disease, which they held dear, and theories are useful, and the data in front of them that did not conform to those theories, uh, they largely cleave to the theory. And so this is a kind of perfect example of willful blindness. The, de- the the data's there, but the theory prevails. And so for a very long period of time, as more and more women were x-rayed when pregnant and rates of childhood cancer increased, everybody was full of certainty. And so it's a kind of object lesson. The whole book is an object lesson in the dangers of certainty. And it's kind of interesting, you know, the two books are very intimately connected, that right now when we're craving certainty, it may feel a bit mean-spirited to say, be careful what you wish for, but be careful what you wish for.
2: Probably instead more directly linked to the book is your 2019 TED talk, Mm -hmm. where you explain that the more we rely on technology, and we become efficient uh, thanks to this, but still the fewer skills we have got to confront the unexpected. So uh, what shall we do? Among other things, you suggest that we develop more human, messy human skills, uh, such as imagination, humility, bravery, to solve uh, new problems uh, in both business, government, and our daily life.
1: Yeah, so I think you know one of the things that we've rather overlooked in our uh, enthusiasm for technology, we're very dazzled by it and easily seduced, is that um, when you use technology, effectively what you're doing is outsourcing to a machine work you used to do yourself. Now, sometimes that's fine. I don't really mind the fact that my phone now knows my children's phone numbers, and I don't. You know, which in the past I knew by heart. Um, that seems to me absolutely fine. But there are all sorts of other skills, um, like deciding who I like, what I'm going to read, where I want to go, decision making skills, um, which I don't want to become less good at. And the issue with outsourcing decision making, and I've talked about it on a trivial level. But decision making around um, who gets out of jail or not, um, who gets arrested or not, who gets social services or not, um, you know, who gets what kind of education. These are decision-making skills which are quite finely honed, which are complex, where the notion of a perfect decision is socially constructed as well as data-driven. And I fear for a society where we regularly, routinely um, disable those skills by our failure to use them on a daily basis. And I think there's a great deal about technology which deliberately or accidentally reduces our capacity to make decisions, to use good judgment, and reduces our confidence, our sense of agency that we can do this. And I think this is very threatening to the individual ability to think for him or herself, to make choices which can be explained and understood and which have some transparent legitimacy. Because it's simply saying, well, that's what the algorithm uh, decided in a public forum, in a thing that we call society, that really isn't good enough. But half the time the people deploying algorithms have absolutely no idea what models lie within them because they're trade secrets. Many people deploying algorithms don't understand how they work and therefore can't explain them. And therefore when they go wrong, have no defense. So this really is a different kind of willful blindness, which is we're in danger of adopting technology we profoundly don't understand and whose um, logic and consequences we are making ourselves blind to.
2: I forgot to describe the structure of the book. There are three parts. The first is prediction addiction, the second is, uh, what would you do if you were free? And the third is, life happens. There are 10 chapters. Uh, this is not a book uh, in economics, but uh, uh, you now just mentioned a crucial uh, uh, topic in behavioral economics, for example. And um, uncertainty itself is uh, a clear, is clearly a very important uh, uh, variable in both microeconomics and microeconomics but even if it is not a book in economics you start with an anecdote about the early life of a great american economist irving fisher and there was a swimming accident and then he discovers uh, that he got tuberculosis and both things affected his research interest what mm-hmm. would become a his main research interest in stability and monetary economics for his entire career. Uh, so this chapter one False profits.
1: Yes, so so Fisher is is very interesting because he really comes to prominence at the time that the forecasting um, capacity uh, becomes. Greatly enlarged by a lot of technological developments. So you have, because of the railroads and the telegraph, you have greater capacity than ever to collect data. You have uh, the emergence of statistics, which gives you a greater capacity to analyze the data. And you also have um, railroads, which allow you to distribute newsletters on issues like market forecasting. So it's one of these classic moments in science where technology all comes together to create a whole new industry. And Fisher really gloms onto this and and believes that with enough data about markets, he can predict their behavior. And he's deeply concerned by and disturbed by the uncertainty around markets. And the, the parallel I draw is that he understands on a really visceral level what uncertainty means to people because his um, diagnosis of tuberculosis in itself is deeply uncertain. So this is a time at the end of the 19th century when most of the Western world is infected with tuberculosis, but the diagnosis itself is deeply uncertain. Two reasons, first of all, There is no reliable test for TB at the time because uh, the pathogen wasn't actually identified until the next century. And even if you're told you have TB, you don't really know what the diagnosis means. It could mean you will be dead in uh, several months. It could mean, as happened with Fisher, that in fact he lived um, to the age of 80 So tuberculosis was often a disease that lay latent and it might require other things to kick it off. So this is a man who really understands certainty. He really understands on a personal level the desire for for certainty. He applies that kind of human insight to his study of markets and is hugely, hugely motivated to identify some laws Of economics, which will have the same certainty in essence as the laws of physics. And he collects vast amounts of data on index cards. He makes his private fortune through selling his um, index card system. And he is absolutely convinced um, right up to the 1920s that he's really cracked it. And sadly, he, like all the founding fathers of forecasting, get it wrong. Now, Irving, you know, Irving Fisher got it wrong because his analysis of the markets was incorrect. Um, his contemporary, Roger Babson, um, got it wrong and right. He'd been, um, you know, when Wall Street crashed, he had been predicting a crash for three years, so he claimed credit. Fisher definitely couldn't even do that. Um and Warren Persons at the Harvard uh, Business Research Institute uh, equally failed. So I tell this story partly because I think the story of Fisher is, is quite a moving story. And his son wrote a very moving memoir of his father, who was misled by his certainty about his own predictions. And I think he was very driven by his craving for certainty and in that I think he's like almost everybody we know which is that in our desire for certainty we also often accept as fact what is in fact only a very precarious web of assumptions and as you will know you know I'm I'm very skeptical about the predictive capacity of human beings
0: That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Talking talking about predictions, yes, there are very interesting uh, uh, quotes in your book. For example, the beginning of chapter one, the only function of economic forecasting is to make astrology look respectable by John Kennett. And then chapter two starts with another quote that reminds me, of the famous book by David Lowenthal, which is The Past is a Foreign Country. Mm. The quote you use is to remember this word is to create it. So this book is uh, chapter sorry, this chapter is chapter two, does history repeats mm. repeat itself? Um, history does repeat itself, and even genetics won't tell you everything you want to know, you argue. And you argue also that we live in a situation of in re- ineradicable in uncertainty. Mm. A, so this is a condition of our life, a structural condition of our life. And since we operate in a complex environment, you argue that efficiency is now a hazard, it's not a health, because being robust would be a better, safer option.
0: Mm.
1: So, so my argument about efficiency is efficiency works extremely well in conditions over which we have a great deal of control, where things are pretty linear, and we can see all the forces acting upon the thing that we're doing, where there are patterns that repeat themselves predictably. In those environments, and something like a manufacturing line is a perfect example, um, efficiency is fantastic. Um, But where you're dealing with uncertainty, and bear in mind in particular that the defining characteristic of uncertainty is that it's unquantifiable as differentiated from risk. In conditions of uncertainty, where you know these random events can occur, efficiency will rob you of margins, margins for error, and margins for surprise. And, you know, the way I think about this is the way that um, the designers and engineers who make aircraft think about it, which is, you know, you can even think of the whole airplane journey, which is you go into your airport and you check your bags, and that's a complicated process. It's very controllable. It may have lots and lots of moving parts and even multiple companies, but it's pretty much the same every time. Uh, and you can control just about every piece of it. But once the airplane gets into the air, you know that you don't quite know every single day for the lifetime of that airplane everything that's going to happen, and you also know you can't control it. And as a consequence, planes are engineered to be robust, which means they have more engines than they need, and the engines run off of multiple software systems. Now, th- what that, you know, so that is an expense. That is inefficient on one front. But what it means is that if there's a bug in one software system, the others can cope. And if there's a flaw in one of the engines, the others can cope. So it's robustness is different from resilience in the, in the sense that resilience is about recovery but robustness is required where there are possibilities, the impact of which is so awful that you don't want to be efficient. You want to be able to prevent, at the cost of over-engineering, something truly terrible. And I think in the last 30 or 40 years, we've become um, very obsessed with efficiency, Quite arrogant, actually, about how finely tuned our systems can be. We saw this also, of course, in the banking crisis. And I think it's time for us in our analysis of the health of organizations, companies, and economies to ask both how resilient they are, how quickly might they recover, and how robust they are, which is how far are they defended against truly big disasters which may be unlikely but whose impact will be huge and I don't think we've been asking those questions because we've really been seduced by the notion that between technology and uh, management we really can know everything and control everything and it's quite interesting because you know the first third of the book is quite a a uh, hefty onslaught on the notion of our capacity to predict. And when I wrote it, I was extremely conscious of the fact that this went against every narrative out there. Um, much of our news and a great deal of economics depends on appearing to be able to forecast. And nevertheless, I have you a know, kind of fundamental belief as a writer that you have to write what you see truthfully. So I thought this was a really uphill battle. And of course, my book came out in the UK a month before lockdown occurred. And I think the argument just went away. I think people suddenly thought, yeah, uncertainty, it's here. It's real. We don't know how to manage it. We used to think we could manage everything. Now we're in a different place.
2: Indeed, indeed. Uh, talking about uncertainty and uh, unexpected results and also failures, in chapter 7, which is Cathedrals, mm. you, tell, you talk about uh, the super huge research center uh, in Europe, uh, in, in between Switzerland and France, CERN, mm. and you tell about uh, the spin offs and the research pro- projects and also how, also how they handle uncertainty and failure.
1: Hmm. Well, so I wrote about cathedral projects because, you know, the phrase comes from Stephen Hawking, who talked about, you know, projects that last longer than a human lifetime and therefore which are kind of fundamentally impossible to plan or to predict. And I thought of cathedral projects as really a great example that even if we can't predict, it doesn't leave us inert or helpless and neither does it condemn us to permanent short-termism. And, you know, there are a number of examples in there, but I chose CERN in particular because this is an organization in and of itself of immense complexity. When it was set up, it was impossible to say what work it would be doing. When it starts off on a new project, and, you know, I write about mostly about the um, Neutrino project, which is going on there at the moment. It's impossible to know at the time that it started exactly how long it will take, how it will be done, because it hugely depends on technologies that haven't been invented yet, and what will be found. Because, of course, if you knew what you're going to find, it wouldn't be worth doing. And what I'm so impressed by at CERN is the capacity of this multilateral organization to cope with uncertainty and not be paralyzed by it, but also not in a rush to certainty to shrink the ambition of what they're doing. And, of course, on a very tactical day-to-day basis, um, you know the, the directors general who run CERN are constantly being asked, uh, by their funders you know, to predict exactly what will happen and exactly what will come out of it and exactly what the economic benefit will be. And God bless them, they always refuse on the grounds that, well, if you knew what the experiment was going to do, it wouldn't be worth doing. And, um, and the more that you you define what it will do, the less you will discover, the more you will constrain the exploration. And I wrote about this because my sense is that we, many, many of the organizations I work with in the UK and the US and around the world are so um, outcome driven and their investors are so desperate for certainty. What are you going to do? What's it going to make? How's it going to make it? Tell us to the third decimal point exactly how valuable it will be that in this passion for certainty they constrain the upside of the project and i think what cern shows is that the opposite of a planned constrained project is not chaos it's creativity and that it's possible to do this in a highly scientific environment and create huge breakthroughs Without surrendering to the overwhelming kind of um, managerialism of so-called scientific management, and I think there are many, many institutions, and I would definitely count universities among them, which are so driven by rankings and scores and you know research assessment exercises and sort of this sort of thing that, to the degree that you adopt these kinds of frameworks, you reduce creativity, you constrain potential, you suffocate great ideas and real inventiveness. And I think CERN is a real challenge. I mean, it's, you know, the chapter is designed as a challenge, which is we can do better than short-termism. We can do better than clinging to our metrics. And the opposite of management is not chaos.
2: This is such a strong uh, message, and I am sure that uh, many, most, uh, every, if not everybody holding academic positions, in particular in the UK, would uh, would agree. And uh, this is a very interesting example. Um, now, let's move to Chapter 10, which is Be Prepared. And talking about three projects, like CERN itself was uh, at the beginning, when it was set up, uh, you describe the Norway Norway World Seeds Deposit, mm. uh, which is a construction to keep the world heritage of biodiversity, and it was defined correctly by then by them at the, uh, the, the funding moment. The most important natural resource on Earth, and you tell the story of the Norwegian Norwegian government. Uh, strangely, we could say supporting this crazy 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 <laughs> project. Mm.
1: Well, I think what's so interesting about Svalbard is, you know, there was an an awareness on the part of uh, biologists that all kinds of extreme weather events and extreme political events were destroying the national collections of seeds, which are our biological heritage, and on which it's quite possible our future might depend one day. And so they came up with this notion that, We need to find the safest place in the world in which to collect a global collection of all the plants that have ever existed in the world, particularly because in the light of climate change, we don't know what kinds of plants will become impossible to grow and which might suddenly become possible to grow again. And so, this is a beautiful example of what I call a just in case scenario. So, a great deal of the way that we manage everything these days with a weather eye on efficiency is just in time, right? We do everything at the last minute because that reduces margins and it reduces uncertainty. And in situations where we have a lot of control over our systems, just in time is a kind of miracle. Um, and it's how, if you like a lot of supply chains, most supply chains operate, and it's one reason why actually we were able to feed everybody during the lockdown. But there are some situations where you absolutely can't afford to do everything at the last minute and give in and, and the characteristic of climate change is it's a beautiful example, just like pandemics are of uncertainty, which is to say we have tons of data around it. we know, it is generally certain, but it is specifically deeply ambiguous, which is we don't know which floods are going to happen where, we don't know which crops they'll destroy, we don't know where the next forest fires will break out, and we don't know what kinds of plant life those might destroy potentially forever. And therefore, when you have a situation of uncertainty where there's specific confidence, but you know, sorry, where there's general certainty, but specific ambiguity, you need to be thinking about just in case. And Svalbard is, it turns out, about the safest place on earth. It's the coldest place on earth. And it's where now over a million seeds of plants, past and present, are being held in what we hope is the safest place on earth. Now, You know, if everything goes beautifully, we may never need it. But the argument is, since we can't be confident of that, we have to do this because as climate change unfolds, we don't know what we're going to need. And therefore, we want to have everything available to us that we can store.
2: So, one message is to be brave and keep building cathedrals. This is the beautiful conclusion of the book, which is, um, what do we need to do? What sorry, what do we need to do, and what do we need to be to navigate the future? All we owe to ourselves and to generations to come is to own the gifts we have to create the best that we can imagine, exercising daily the self determination that built cathedrals. It doesn't matter where we start, only that we do. Uh, Thank you very much for the powerful messages of this book. Um, Maybe I I now would like to ask you about your current project and so your next book or your next TED Talk.
1: Well, my next book is very uncertain. Um, You know, I'm, I'm kind of waiting to see of all the ideas for books, which ones won't let me go, because that's kind of my test for a good idea, which is, can I forget it easily? And if I can, then, you know, then I don't do it. Um, as for TED Talks, I don't know. I mean, I've put a great deal into this book, which is, you know, it's a book of economics, it's a book of psychology, it's a book of human life. And, um, and I do something which I think might infuriates my publishers, but which is, I write with the rigor required for a specialist audience, but in a way that's accessible for a general audience. Because I think we have a real problem around the way we think about the future. I think our craving for certainty leads us to accept poor ideas. I think our craving for certainty leads a lot of experts to pretend that they have greater certainty than they do. And I think both of those things constrain our human capability. And so right now, I'm spending a lot of time with organizations, helping them in this crisis, I hope, to be braver, to be more imaginative, and um, to be less constrained in the way that they think about what they need to do and what they need to be to weather the COVID crisis because as much as everyone wants to believe there'll be a vaccine and everything will be fine, talk about uncertainty, we're right in the middle of it. And so we need more ideas, better ideas, a broader number and kind of people involved in decision-making if we're really going to find our way out of this.
2: Well, we look forward to, to see what will be the next title. But uh, for the time being, uh, congratulations for Uncharted, uh, How to Map and Navigate the Future Together, published by Simon & Schuster in 2020. We spoke with the author, Dr. Margaret Efferdan. Thank you, Margaret.
1: Well, thank you so much. And and I hope you uh, can put some of the ideas into practice.